I know I've said it before, but it's totally true. Medicine moves real fast. When I was in residency, giving a patient post-sexual assault antibiotic prophylaxis was three meds, ceftriaxone, doxycycline or azithromax, and flagell or metronidazole. And that was it. Then we added the possibility of HIV post-exposure prophylaxis. But now it's changed again. And now the recommended algorithm includes vaccination for two viral infections. We're going to cover this in this podcast. Again, in this session, we're going to cover the antibiotic and antiviral prophylaxis for a patient who is status post-sexual assault. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. The terms rape and sexual assault are sometimes used interchangeably and the legal definitions of both terms can vary from state to state. Specifically, sexual assault is a crime of violence and aggression and includes a continuum of sexual activity that can range from sexual coercion to contact abuse, that's unwanted kissing, touching, or fondling. Of course, sexual assault can also include rape. Rape, as redefined by the FBI in 2013, is the penetration, no matter how slight, of the vagina or anus with any body part or object or oral penetration by a sex organ of another person without the consent of the victim. This definition notably excludes any gender of the victim and the perpetrator and any reference to force. So the definition acknowledges that rape and sexual assault can occur in situations in which consent is not given, like situations of intoxication or when the individual are otherwise mentally or physically incapable of demonstrating consent. Patients presenting for medical treatment after sexual assault may be concerned about the possibility of acquiring an infectious disease as well as the possibility of pregnancy, but we'll cover that in just a minute. Remember, this podcast is focused with the prevention of infectious diseases following a single episode of rape. Transmission of STDs after sexual assault vary widely among populations. They range from high reported rates of 12% for trichomonas and 19% for bacterial vaginosis to lower estimates for chlamydia at about 2% and gonorrhea at about 4%. Now, the literature cannot provide reliable estimates data on the risk of transmission for things like hepatitis or herpes or HIV infection from sexual assault because it's hard to track this and the data is just not that reliable. However, sexual transmission of hepatitis B is common here, even in the U.S., among non-vaccinated individuals engaging in receptive intercourse with hepatitis B positive partners. And both hepatitis B and HIV transmission have been reported after sexual assault. Standard recommendations include treatment for gonorrhea and chlamydia at the time of the initial evaluation. Remember that patients don't have to be tested for STIs at the time of initial evaluation because, especially if it happened within the first 48 hours to 72 hours, a lot of these tests may not be positive. So testing for STIs is crucial at about one to two weeks after the event and doesn't have to be done at the time of initial evaluation because prophylactic or empiric treatment will be offered anyway. In addition to treatments for gonorrhea and chlamydia, the CDC recommends routine administration of medications to prevent symptomatic trichomonal infection. 
Currently, the CDC recommends ceftriaxone in a 250 milligram dose IM as the drug of choice for preventing active infections of gonorrhea after sexual assault. Now remember that gonorrhea requires dual agent therapy, and so for this reason, it is also common to give a one gram dose of oral Zithromax at the same time. This will also cover, of course, incubating chlamydial infection. The benefit of giving ceftriaxone at 250 milligrams is that it also covers at that dose incubating syphilis from becoming clinical. Okay, we've covered prophylaxis for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. Well, what about trichomonas? Of course, that's metronidazole 2 grams orally in a single dose. But remember to delay this medication by 1 to 2 hours after the other meds to reduce nausea. And patients must be aware, remember as always, to avoid the use of alcohol because of the disulfurium-like reaction. Alternatively, tinidazole or Tindamax at the same 2-gram orally dose can also be given with the same delay of 1 to 2 hours after the other meds. Alright, in full transparency, when I was in training, hepatitis B and HPV vaccination or prophylaxis after assault wasn't done, but it is a thing now. The CDC recommends serological testing for hepatitis B if the victim's vaccination status is unknown. Now, examiners in some studies may choose to refer patients for both HIV and hepatitis B testing rather than at the time of the initial eval because communicating positive results and facilitating treatment may be hard to do. Nonetheless, testing for hepatitis B is recommended as vaccination and immune globulin treatment may fail to work and transmission of the virus from an assault may qualify the victims for lifetime coverage of related medical expenses resulting from viral transmission at the time of the attack because of the Violent Crime Compensation Fund. Testing may be omitted if the victim is known to be adequately vaccinated with an appropriate antigenic response, but of course, few people know that. Administer vaccination at the same time as the exam or within 24 hours of the assault and schedule the remaining two for series completion in victims known to be unvaccinated. Now, when a perpetrator, when the assailant is known to be hepatitis B surface antigen positive and the victim is known to be unvaccinated and tests hepatitis B antibody negative, then the CDC recommends the administration of HBIG, that's hepatitis B immune globulin, at the same time of vaccination at a separate site. This should ideally be performed within 14 days of the assault. Now, if the victim does state that they have been vaccinated in the past for hepatitis B, then a single booster injection is warranted. Now, what about HPV? The CDC recently recommended HPV vaccination for females through the age of 26 years after sexual assault. This appears to be more of a public health measure as it follows a recommended childhood vaccination guide rather than a true post-sexual assault specific treatment since not all exposed victims are given this recommendation although it might indeed prevent transmission for those over 26 and for male victims as well, the CDC has kind of made its recommendation specifically for females through the age of 26 after sexual assault. All right, podcast family, let's wrap this up with the prevention of HIV infection after assault. Are three meds better than two meds? Well, let's talk about that next. 
there are no published studies on the effectiveness of HIV post-exposure prophylaxis after sexual assault. However, post-exposure prophylaxis, or PEP, for parenteral occupational exposure to infected body fluids, like, for example, after a needle stick, is believed to be effective based on case control studies. Although the risk for HIV transmission from one episode of unprotected consensual receptive vaginal intercourse with an infected individual is only about one to two per thousand, the violent nature of many sexual assaults and the resultant injury may increase transmission rate. After unprotected receptive anal intercourse, the risk of transmission has been found to be greater than 5 to 32 per thousand. The CDC recommends administering post-exposure prophylaxis to sexual assault victims within 72 hours of the assault, resulting in a substantial risk of transmission with a known HIV-positive perpetrator. This is a 28-day medical course for sexual assault victims, and it's similar to that given for occupational exposure, like after a needle stick. As with occupational exposure, post-exposure prophylaxis should be initiated as soon as possible after the assault. HIV seroconversion due to failures of post-exposure prophylaxis following assault exposure have been reported. In cases where the HIV status of the perpetrator is not known, the CDC advises practitioners to decide with patients on an individual case-by-case basis who gets the medical therapy and who doesn't. Some states in the U.S. legislate medical examiners to offer HIV post-exposure prophylaxis to all sexual assault victims, and practitioners must be aware of their state laws. But in general, medications are only given within 72 hours and are not given after the 72-hour mark. Okay, here's a clinical pearl. No evidence indicates that any specific antiretroviral medication or combination of medications is optimal for use as post-exposure prophylaxis. There's also no evidence that indicates that a three-drug highly active antiretroviral therapy regimen is more likely to be effective than a two-drug regimen. The recommendation for a three-drug heart regimen is based on the assumption that the maximal suppression of viral replication afforded by heart will provide the best chance of preventing infection in a person who was exposed. But in true practice, most only use a dual medication formula because once again, according to the CDC, there's no evidence that indicates that a three-drug, highly active antiretroviral drug regimen is more effective. For patients who wish to proceed with HIV post-exposure antiretroviral prophylaxis, the dual medications include zidovudine with lamivudine. All right, now that we've covered the recommended medical regimens for post-exposure prophylaxis after assault, we can't leave this podcast without talking about post-examination follow-up. That follow-up is crucial. Patients should have a follow-up in one to two weeks for repeat STD testing if not completed during the initial examination, which remember, is just not required, but some offer to do it as a baseline. And then again at four to six weeks and at three to six months for HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and syphilis serology testing. It doesn't matter if the victim is male or female. Sexual assault is a terribly traumatic condition that can have real physiological, emotional, and psychosocial consequences down the road. All patients should be evaluated using the trauma-informed care model. 
the trauma-informed approach to care uses a framework that acknowledges the effect of trauma, recognizes signs and symptoms of the trauma, responds by integrating knowledge about trauma into the practice, and seeks to resist re-traumatization. The key principles of trauma-informed care include ensuring physical and emotional safety, maximizing the trustworthiness of the healthcare team, and prioritizing individual choice and control. This allows the individual to be empowered, all while providing supportive and encouraging feedback to the patient. Well, this wraps up our episode covering post-exposure prophylaxis after sexual assault. We're glad that you're part of our podcast family. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.